Hello and welcome back to A Study in Granada, Season 2. Gang, we did it. Season 2, we're here. I, of course, am Mike Knoll, a longtime fan but not expert of the Sherlock Holmes series, and I'm joined perpetually by my celebrated friend. <laughs> I'm Jack Snefflin, and I can't believe you used the introduction I was going to use, so that works out really well. Got the mind sync thing going on. The learner has become the te- No. Uh, this is all awful. Anyway, so yeah, I don't know the Sherlock Holmes stories as well, but Mike is a huge fan and uh, has brought me in. And I'm really glad because the first season of the Granada series was amazing. And I'm really glad that we're keeping on with this. Speaking of great Granada television, we move into this first episode of season two with the Copper Beaches. Jackson, what did you think of this one? I loved it. It's very spooky and I like being spooked. I feel like a lot of Sherlock Holmes stuff, modern adaptions, kind of focus on the action and the mystery and less on the horror aspect of this. And this one is very much in that kind of gothic horror genre of mystery. Got like a spooky house out in the woods. You've got doppelgangers. You've got mysterious people with women locked behind closed doors. You got skulls. This one has skulls in it. That's actually on the uh, poster for the episode. Like That's what it says on there. Copper Beaches, Jeremy Brett, David Burke. This one has skulls in it. And it's kind of a relatively quintessential Sherlock Holmes story where a young working class woman comes to Sherlock about something weird happening in her life and Sherlock has to rush out to a manor in the country to solve her problems. I think with that, why don't we just jump into the synopsis? So we open in this fight, and Sherlock Holmes is just petulant, basically because he's bored and doesn't have a case, and takes this opportunity to chide Watson about how he's doing the stories wrong, pretty much. You have erred in attempting to put color and life into each of your statements, instead of confining yourself to placing upon a record that severe reasoning from cause to effect which is really the only notable feature about the thing and this is a pretty common thread in sherlock holmes stories isn't it? the idea that sherlock wants to be more serious whereas watson is kind of more sensational with it he knows how to market things i take it more as holmes is annoyed crime is common logic is rare therefore it is upon logic rather than upon crime that you should dwell you have degraded what should have been a course of lectures into a series of tales. Like a, here's how you too can use deduction in your everyday life, blah, blah, blah. And Watson is more like, no, these are like really interesting stories. People want to hear about the adventure and the mystery. They don't necessarily care as much about how they can learn to be just like you. And I think that to me, that's what I got from this argument was Holmes is saying, you're trying to tell stories when really you should be presenting this in a way that people can internalize and use themselves. Yeah, that makes sense. And it presents a slightly shrewd Watson, because if you could learn to do this yourself, then he would lose his monopoly on this great detective. Yeah, like I don't attribute any kind of like scheming or planning. I think oh, Watson's sure. just like, I have this inside scoop on the Sherlock Holmes. Like, I'm going to tell the stories. It's not necessarily like keeping a monopoly on that aspect. Question. To what extent do you think Watson is an unreliable narrator? Uh, we talked about this a little bit in last season. It's been a while since... Er, to part the curtain, it's been a while since we've recorded. So I've touched on this previously, but there was a, a book I read. It's called The Devil's Grin by Annalee Windeberg. And the protagonist ends up meeting Sherlock Holmes. And he's kind of a little harsher, uh, more of kind of, of a jerk just in general. And the idea that this protagonist puts forward is that Holmes and Watson are friends. And so Watson has a very 
skewed in a way perspective on Holmes. He could explain away or just like, oh, you know, that's just how he is. That's, you know, this or that and another thing. And so we don't get an objective opinion. So I think inherently Watson is sort of an unreliable narrator. Yeah. In one of the Holmes even says, you withhold things from the stories. Like he outright says, there are things that happen in these mysteries that you don't put in the stories like to help with the plot. Which, oh boy, we're going to get to withholding information from the audience here in a little bit. And Holmes has this great line where he talks about how he, it's like criminals are getting dull. And it's just really, for someone who's not a fan of you know people who like art for its own sake and are a fan of the loveliest manifestations and keen pleasures, he sure does go in for dramatic soliloquies. Like that one about how... Uh, the days of the great cases are past. Man, or at least criminal man, has lost all enterprise and originality. For somebody who self-admits that they love a turn of the dramatic, especially when it comes to solving the mystery, and is like, gleefully talks about like, oh yeah, you know, Watson will tell you that I, I love a taste of the dramatic, to then turn around, turn around and be like, I'm sorry, but these are just too interesting. Like, <laughs> you're telling these stories wrong by making them interesting and a little theatrical. But uh, this, I guess, petulant tantrum is broken up by the arrival of Violet Hunter, uh, who comes to seek advice from Holmes on the job as a governess for Mr. Rucastle. In return for a very generous salary, she should wear the clothes and sit at the places her employees sees fit, and above all, get her magnificent hair cut short. In the story, this is her just relating this pretty straightforwardly, but here in the episode we have a really effective flashback where she's in this office of a, a temp agency basically they're finding her this uh, situation and mr rucastle is terrifying oh yeah he's such a creep he's described as more suave in the story but here he's played more like a you know those senators who are really sure they know what kind of laws we should have about women's bodies He's like one of those gone to seed. The way he looks at her is like a wolf staring down a doe in the forest. And the way he talks, it's like he's about to gobble her up. And it's terrifying. When she walks in and he sees her, he literally says, That will do. You can tell that he's only here for someone who looks right as opposed to a competent teacher. Because she says, hey, I'm not that good. I only have a bit of French and German and some music. It's clear that there's something weird going down because they're going to pay her like a hundred pounds. Like... For uh, reference, the last job she had was like four pounds a month or whatever. And he says, oh, no, we're going to pay you like a hundred pounds a year. And then she's like, oh, what are my responsibilities? Oh, it's just kind of teaching a little bit to my one kid. Like, that doesn't track. Yeah, it's very much a red flag thing, but not in a way that you can point to and say this is a red flag because, like, no one's going to say, oh, man, this job is offering me a lot of money to do a very small amount of work. I don't want that. I think that a lot of it comes down to also Joss Ackland, the actor who plays Jeffro Rucastle, which is a great name. It's a good name. He really sells this one. And I think that the show made a smart decision switching from a very genial, boisterous man to, like, kind of a creep. Like, you can tell right away that he's creepy, but you're not sure why. And the knowledge that there's something wrong, but the not knowing what the wrong thing is adds to the drama and gravitas of it all. In the story, the concerns that Miss Hunter has about going there are, are basically like, this seems a little sketchy, like one kid out in the country, they're going to pay me all this money, but they want me to wear very specific clothes and cut my hair. Like, do you think that this is weird? What do you think, Mr. Holmes? And in the show, 
they make him creepy from the beginning and it gives her a basically similar but better and slightly different reason to be like hey is this cool what do you think and she initially says no i don't want to do this i don't want to cut my hair because she has nice hair but she gets a letter that says hey do this for us and she's made up her mind and she's kind of doing this to clue Holmes in like hey I don't know what this is gonna be but you should know something's gonna go down here's the back catalog of information thus far yeah she says when she gets there that she doesn't have any family to talk to about this so she decided to come visit Sherlock Holmes relatable I like that the show made him way creepier And I think it goes with the tone, which I know we're going to talk about later in the episode. Eventually, Violet does take the job. And after being settled at the Copper Beaches, which is the name of Rue Castle's creepy manor house, Violet is putting away her things. Earlier in the the episode, like right before this, we show her cutting her hair. And she takes the like long strand of what she's cut off and puts it in her trunk for some reason to keep. And she's putting her things away at the Copper Beaches. And she opens a locked drawer and finds an identical tousel I don't know what the exact term is of hair like same color same length like it looks identical in the story she actually says like I found my hair I don't know I feel like that was also a very smart decision of visually having her just like pulling a length of hair out of the dresser and then holding it up next to hers like she's standing there in this very darkly lit room with two lengths of hair and so we know right off the bat that there's something weird happening with this hair but again we're not sure what I've seen enough mystery stories to be like hmm They want her to wear a certain clothes and cut her hair a certain way. It's a doppelganger situation. Yeah. But, I mean, that's probably less of a common trope for someone to be aware of when the story is being written. So it's less obvious to her that that that's what's happening. And I'm like, okay, so doppelganger, but why? My guess was either that someone had died and they wanted to replace her. And uh, Mm -hmm. we'll see how right I was with that. Well, you see, Jackson, that's what happens when you make theories without the right data in the chronology of the story and the episode Holmes and Watson get another letter from her begging them to come up to Winchester and along the way they're riding the train and I want to read this quote because they do a shorter version of that quote but they don't take the full quote and I think the full quote from the story is more affecting are they not fresh and beautiful I cried with all the enthusiasm of a man fresh from the fogs of Baker Street but Holmes shook his head gravely Do you know, Watson, said he, that it is one of the curses of a mind with a turn like mine that I must look at everything with reference to my own special subject. You look at these scattered houses, and you are impressed by their beauty. I look at them, and the only thought which comes to me is a feeling of their isolation and of the impunity with which crime may be committed there. Who would associate crime with these dear old homesteads? They always fill me with a sudden horror. It is my belief, Watson, founded upon my experience, that the lowest and vilest alleys in London do not present a more dreadful record of sin than does the smiling and beautiful countryside. You horrify me, but the reason is very obvious. The pressure of public opinion can do in the town what the law cannot accomplish. There is no lane so vile that the scream of a tortured child or the thud of a drunkard's blow does not beget sympathy and indignation among the neighbors. And then the whole machinery of justice is ever so close that a word of complaint can set it going. And there is but a step between the crime and the dock. But look at these lonely houses, each in its own fields, filled for the most part with poor, ignorant folk who know little of the law. Think of the deeds of hellish cruelty, the hidden wickedness which may go on, year in, year out, in such places, and none the wiser. Had this young lady who appeals for us for help gone to live in Winchester, I should never have had a fear for her. It is the five miles of country which makes the danger. 
this is something I was super excited about because this is a really good definition of folk horror. Folk horror is a long-standing genre that has only recently begun to be talked about that much. There's a community of people who are fascinated by horror stories, gothic tales that are set in removed locations, especially countrysides and out-of-the-way lanes, that kind of thing, small towns, where, like Sherlock is saying, crime can be committed because it's so far away from the structures of civilization and law. And this is a good example of that. This idea that the countryside is not safe, and it is, in fact, more unsafe than the city. And it's really cool to see that coming through here. They get to Winchester to meet with Violet, and she recounts then things that had happened in the, like, five, six days. They say a fortnight, I think, in the story, so, like, the previous ten-ish days. Yeah. And we find out that she has been basically asked to wear this electric blue dress and sit in this one window with her back to it every day for a couple hours from a specific time until another specific time. And it doesn't really bother her for a while, because Mr. Rucastle tells these very funny stories and she actually says, like, he seems very genial. Like, I've never had any problems with them. Now, in the story, he's described as genial, but here, it makes me think more like uh, in creepy clown movies, when the clown will just be scary and loud, and it's like, he's telling jokes, but clown with a knife is not funny, it's just terrifying. That's what I got from this. I got a very distinct feeling, kind of like Get Out. Yeah! On this one. With, like, the house and the person who's there, and everybody's, like, smiling and friendly, but it's still, you're, you're always uneasy about it. I don't know if that counted as folk horror. I put but, it in there. Uh, it's kind of a loose definition. Man, I might watch Get Out. So, eventually she starts to realize that they're purposefully keeping her back to this window, and so it fills her with a desire to look out the window. So she hides a bit of mirror in her handkerchief and kind of peeks out, and she sees a man pressed against the fence at the other end of the lawn, and basically they catch her looking, and they make her kind of half-turn and shoo that guy away. And this is a really clever thing. In the story, uh, it just mentions casually that a hand mirror got broken, and so that's why she has this mirror Mm -hmm. she can use. In the story, she drops the mirror when she finds the two strands of hair. So they put that in there in advance so we have mirror integrated into the yeah. plot. It's clever. I noticed that as well. I thought that was very sharp. No pun intended. Hey. Um, she notices that there is a tower on this manor that's shuttered up. And one day she happens to get in because somebody left the keys in the lock. Uh, there's a drunk butler, basically. In the story, it's more explicit that he left the keys in the door. So Violet sneaks into this tower and notices, basically at the top of the stairway, there's another locked door she can't get in, but she sees footsteps back and forth under the door in the light. And she gets spooked, right? This is where she gets spooked, or is it like the the crows or whatever that spook her more? I remember the crows. There was like birds or something, I thought. Sure. She winds up getting spooked here and runs away, but runs right into Mr. Brew Castle. I think I want to point out, though, she's walking down this hallway, and it is full of animal skulls. I use antlers in all of my decorating. Again, light get out. You have this creepy hallway full of all these skulls with horns, and there's even like a table covered in a green cloth also covered in skulls. So I'm like, is that like a cult? Cults usually have antlered skulls. I mean, I wrote down culty as a note in here watching this one. Sure has that vibe. I get the curiosity, I get needing to know, but at the same time, if I see a hallway full of skulls in an already creepy manner, I run. I have a sense about now to start turning on my microphone and just recording my reactions, which were mostly just telling her to get out of the house. Yeah, we're going to actually put that audio at the end of the episode after we sign off. So for anybody who wants to listen to Jackson's recording of themselves yelling at the TV. So Mr. Rucastle tells her that at the top of the stairs, the door's locked because that's his dark room for photography. 
and basically is like, you didn't see anything, right? She very wisely says, well, no, why? What should have startled me? And he says that now that she knows that nobody's allowed up here, if she ever... ever set foot across that threshold again, I'll throw you to the Mastiff. The dog that they keep barely fed so that it will attack anyone at night who tries to come on the premises. Violet lays this out before them, and they decide that they need to get into the house. So she tells them that the Rue Castles are going to be gone basically all night, and Holmes sets a plan into motion where she'll basically lock the maid in the cellar because the butler's going to be pass out drunk, and then they're going to get into that tower. So Holmes and Watson, determined to make the most of Rue Castle's planned absence, decide to take action at the Copper Beaches. Violet shows them in, and having heard a woman's cry, they rush to the tower. Too late. The nest is empty. In the meantime, Rue Castle hurries back home, where he finds the two men and the governess, whom at first sight he mistakes for his daughter, Alice, for their hair and dresses are similar. Mad with rage, he runs for his mastiff, but instead of attacking the intruders, the ill-treated hound turns against its cruel master. Holmes learns from the housekeeper that Rue Castle had imprisoned Alice, born from a first marriage, to force her to give her fortune up to him before she marries her fiancé, Fowler, by making out that Violet was his daughter. That seems weirdly phrased. By implying? By implying that Violet was his daughter, he expected to convince the unfortunate young man that she was free and did not want him anymore. But Fowler was not fooled and took advantage of Rucastle's absence to set his beloved free. In the end, Alice marries Fowler. Violet Hunter begins a successful career as a headmistress in Rue Castle, savaged by his mastiff, remains disabled and dependent forever. There was a point I wanted to talk about. On the train, Watson says something along the lines of, do you have any theories? And Holmes says he has seven. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. But then- data, data, data. I cannot make bricks without clay. And... Later, when they meet Violet, she asks basically the same question, and Watson says, We cannot theorize without data, I'm afraid. It got me thinking again about our discussion, at least like in The Dancing Men a little bit, and some of the other times where Holmes kind of educates I don't mean that to be like used in the a derogatory sense, but like Watson asks a question and Holmes gives like a decided answer data, data, data. I can't make bricks without clay. And, you know, we need more information before we can start making theories. And then Watson later kind of parrots it uh, in Dancing Men. It's about how to decipher ciphers mm. and all that, which he got from Holmes's monograph. And Holmes kind of smiles like amused when he does that. And in this one, I realized that it can be seen as Watson putting on airs. Like, oh, yes, I, you know, I'm Dr. Watson, and I also know many things. But this is the first time I thought about, it's not Watson covering, it's Watson converting. Yeah. He's been taught this lesson, and now he's putting it out there. This is what I've learned through working with Sherlock Holmes. It's not necessarily puffing his chest up and like, oh, yes, the, you know, I'm also very smart. It's like, this is the smart play. Yeah. And also, in a, in a way, he's kind of explaining that they need more data is something that he can do, and while Sherlock Holmes is, like, doing other more important so Sherlock can be solving the mystery while Watson is doing the PR thing. Yeah, and that's the thing that, and I think that we will have more conversations like this about Watson in the future. I've been editing the Naval Treaty episode as we're recording this, and I went back and watched some clips of it to try to get, you know, sound bites or whatever. And the scene where Percy Phelps is telling his story, they have a map, like a crudely drawn map of like where the exits were. And at one point Watson holds it up and goes, they would have exited here and points at it. And Holmes kind of looks over 
nod nods once and then looks back at percy and it's like watson's there to like facilitate holmes taking in all the information he's not going to hand holmes the map holmes looks for the thing finds it and he's back in it watson's there to like yep this is more information for you and holmes just can kind of immediately take it in and focus back in on the story it's a bit like how literary agents have interns or assistants who will weed out the chaff and get them just the important bits there's a bit when Violet is arranging everybody so that Sherlock and, and Watson can have unimpeded access to the house, where she convinces Mrs. Toller to go down to the basement, and in the story it's just, she's downstairs, I locked her up, whatever. In the episode, we see this happening, and she, like, gives her a push down what I believe are some stairs, so she can lock the door. Oh, yeah, like... Which is extra sad, because Mrs. Toller, like, helps fill in all the details for them later on. Yeah, it turns out that... The Mr. Fowler, who was the love interest at the gate, bribed her to help him. Oh, this amazing line. Holmes figures out that Fowler... Uh, Certain arguments, metallic and otherwise. And that answers the question of, hey, why did Mrs. Toller have all that money we saw earlier? That these are metallic arguments. And that's a great euphemism for a bribe. There is one thing I also want to touch on, a neat thing I noticed. When they get to the top of the stairs at the tower, Holmes, Watson, and uh, Miss Hunter, and she hands him the ring of keys. He basically just, like, holds up the keys to the lock, like, I think comparing with, the like, the metal. Mm, yeah. And then immediately pulls out the key and unlocks it. And I like that idea. Instead of just, like, oh, the first key I tried was the best, they at least go to the trouble of, like, here's some validation for it. And with Sherlock Holmes, like, of course, he could just hold all the keys up to the lock at once and, like, deduce which one is the key. Yeah. But I just thought that was a neat touch. Mm-hmm. It's kind of worked a lot better in an adaption, because it's just a- a very short little motion that you don't have to dwell on, but you can just put it on the screen for people to pick up on if they want to. At the beginning, when Holmes is kind of having his tantrum, Watson says that basically this happens every time Holmes is like, choose on that one specific pipe. Yeah. It's this very like long clay pipe, and he's like, You are always in a disputatious mood when you choose that pipe! And at the end of the episode, he has a different pipe, and it's actually like complimenting Watson on the way he's going to tell the story or whatever. Yeah. We should probably get into that a little bit before we get into other stuff. So the story just ends with Watson wrapping up the mystery plot. In the episode, we see Watson narrating that ending to Holmes, who compliments him on it. An admirable account, Watson. And then turns and smiles. And it's a cool little arc of Sherlock getting over his funk. Yeah, I noticed that the show tends to, because it's, you know, television, they tend to wrap up the opening bits with Holmes and Watson, like, again, in Dancing Men with the... Absolutely simple. At the end. A lot of the Granada episodes are pretty faithfully adapted. They're more or less direct. Here, they chop out a lot of stuff from the story Mm -hmm. to make it a little harder to solve. In the episode, they just have this blue dress for some reason. We don't know why. Whereas in the story... They straight up tell you, oh, we have this dress from our daughter who lives in Philadelphia now. So we already know they have a daughter named Alice who's not around. And there's a little preamble for, like, why she would be gone. Here we don't know there's a daughter until we get there, until we see her in the room. And she's being busted out by her lover. I think we could kind of assume that there is a young lady who was in this narrative and now is not. But the episode makes it harder to guess who that young lady was. I get why they cut out all reference to the the daughter. Audiences are savvy, and in general, I think that just mentioning that there was a daughter, immediately it's like, oh, okay, well, there you go. That's, I mean, I don't know where she is or what's up, but 
probably she's standing in for the daughter. Yeah. I get why. Like, even then, it does feel a little bit like cheating, but I get why they decided they didn't need to reference her at all. I found it weird that Conan Doyle did actually reference the daughter at all, because, I mean, it's Sherlock Holmes. He's supposed to be the amazing detective, and as soon as you're like, oh yeah, we have a daughter who moved to Philadelphia, like, that's obvious immediately right there. No, she didn't. Case closed. Right. I don't know, it just seemed like a weird clue. Like, freebie. And in the story, Sherlock figures out what's going on more or less before they get to the manor. And he lays out the story, and then the manor is just like the action plot of getting the daughter out, kind of, or at least trying to. Whereas here, it's just Sherlock shows up, and then uh, Mrs. Tyler explains the whole thing. I mean, Sherlock figured out some of it, but it's mostly the amount of deducing he does isn't as much as in the story. And so it shifts it from being a mystery to be solved to more of a, a spooky story that Sherlock is experiencing for the audience. I wasn't terribly impressed with the deductions the Holmes does in the story because basically he's like, oh, well, naturally she's, it's the daughter and she's locked in that tower and they cut her hair probably because she was sick. Oh, I don't know. While that's true, it just seemed very much like, I bet that's right. And then it was. And then he was like, well, I'm not sure about most of the rest of this. And then Mrs. Toller says like one thing and he goes, oh, well now of course I can deduce the rest and then just tells us the rest of the plot. So if you're trying to solve it at home, you're probably less happy with the adaption, but I think the adaption is a more exciting story, so I'm okay with it. I actually prefer the adaption as a mystery to be solved because there's less overt clues like, oh yeah, we had a daughter, but she moved. Don't worry about it. In the same way, you can kind of gather that because there's clearly someone who matters in their life with long brunette hair and this kind of dress. You can go, okay, so probably a young lady who is, I figure she's either dead or in the tower and then we see the footsteps like, okay, so she's probably not dead. And then from there, it's the same kind of thing. I think you're right that it's a better mystery. A few more things that cut out from the adaption. In the story, there's mention that Violet thinks that the reasons for these the little fancies and fads that they're having her do are perhaps the wife is a lunatic and they're trying to hide that fact so she's not put into an asylum. And they cut that bit from the episode i'm really glad of that in the same way uh-huh. there's a subtle implication that the child the child does that like serial killer thing of at least little animals and they kind of bury that a little bit like it comes up but it's not like oh he inherited this from his mother because as we know dark urges are genetic I can see why it was put in the story because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle has to use words and anecdotes to convey the folk horror tone that the show can use like lighting and visuals for. Exactly. My take is Conan Doyle trying to be like, no, this place is really fucking creepy. This is not a safe place where the show was able to use lighting and music and camera angles to get that across without needing the laundry list of not great mental issues. Yeah, they mentioned that the child's head is quite large and this story came out in 92, whereas phrenology went out of style about 40 years ago. Come on, Doyle. And like I said, I think, again, that was probably to a small child with a little body and a big head was meant to add to the visual of the written story where we, again, we didn't need that here. The only visual that's kind of scary about this child is that his hair is the same color as Violet Hunter's, and hmm. that was a really good idea, because then we're like, okay, so there's probably some relative who had that same hair color involved in this narrative. I actually didn't even notice that. Oh yeah, well, I saw that, I'm like, yep, it's uh, a mother or a daughter, someone who's related to that kid. Uh, I want to revisit something I said in the earliest day of this podcast in A Scandal Bohemia. We kind of made a joke. And I look forward to their further explorations sure. of feminism as the stories and show goes on. Yeah. Well, because that's a thing. Oh. That's definitely oh, a good. big theme oh, good. in the stories as you continue the exploration of feminism. Oh, good. I'm very excited about that. And I was kind of wrong. 
about, I mean, it's not Holmes and Watson digging into feminism and becoming deeply feminist themselves, but the stories do, as you mentioned earlier in this episode, it is the return of a capable, smart, and daring female character who comes to Sherlock Holmes with like, hey, this seems kind of fucked up, right? And then it is like, oh no, you're like in a lot of danger. Here's what I need you to do. And I know you can do it because you are, as he says here, an exceptionally brave woman. I didn't realize, I think until we started this podcast, there's a lot of things I never really stopped and thought about in Sherlock Holmes. But there is a theme of young women coming to Holmes and then through daring and panache and their own kind of wiles, they manage to do great things and Holmes trusts them to do this and talks about how smart and capable they are. While it's not the same as what you're going for, I do guess have to kind of step back the joke about how they never really touch on that ever again in the series. I mean, Holmes still does the thing where he talks about her being exceptional, implying that women being brave and courageous is unusual as opposed to something to be expected. But he does sure. still have this you know, respect for women being able to be capable, which is pretty cool. I would maybe argue, if this were to be a longer thing, which we could get into at another time, my argument would be more of these are rising to this occasion. Like, it's not necessarily that the all women are capable it's that this woman managed to like rise to this unbelievable occasion like an extra normal that's not a word rise to the challenge yeah i guess the challenge i I don't know what i want like the, the situation is heightened it's not like a normal situation it is something like very uh obscure and she's managed to rise to it and in all the stories this the solitary cyclist where she was being followed and i don't i think it's safe to say not many people in general would if they're being followed by a weirdo on a bike turn around and run that person down with their bicycle yeah and so i think that that's more when he says like exceptional like compliments them like that it's like man this is above and beyond what most people would do in the situation you found yourself in yeah for sure and i do like that i like that we have a running theme of heroic women in these narratives both violet smith there violet hunter here they're both young governesses so there's this like odd archetype but i don't really mind it makes sense these are people who would encounter a mystery that needs solving and be able to come to sherlock holmes they're not like they're not a sister or a maid or whatnot they're someone who has some degree of autonomy and also some distance but that's not the case for helen stoner so it's not a universal thing this won't surprise you to learn this isn't the last governess who takes a job in the country that we're going to meet in our trek through the granada series it is As you said, it's a pretty easy plot device of governesses are a natural way to have younger women who aren't married go into the wild, if you will, I mean the country, and find an adventure. Mm -hmm. You don't really have to do too much. Like Speckled Band was easy as well. Like it was just a woman who lived in this house, but like a hero's journey type thing of stepping over the threshold. It's easy to have a young woman go be a governess somewhere and find something weird. If you need to have a hostile takeover of England by a vampire, it makes sense to have a realtor be someone who's your primary focal character. Exactly. I mean, another classic Sir Arthur Conan Doyle (laughs) plot device. So... I don't know, Jackson, do you have anything else? Um, not really. I do want to say that there's a bit where Sherlock describes Joseph Castle as being this formidable foe, this very cunning man, and is he? Is he? No. <laughs> he has a pretty solid plan in place. He's got the dog. He went and found Violet Hunter. He put a decent plan into place. It's just like, when it comes to thwarting him, it turns out he's actually not very good at it. Yeah, Although he also left this long strand of his daughter's hair in the room where the lady who he's strong-armed into getting a haircut is sleeping, which seems like a really big oversight. Like, that's a really big tip-off that something is wrong. Now, to be fair, he locked the drawer. Yeah, and they gave her the key to that drawer. (laughs) 
All right. Well, if that is everything we've got, then uh, Jackson, do you have anything you want to plug? Yeah, I am half of Gratuitous Pausing. We are a film podcast, and we're probably, I'm not sure what this is being put out right now because we're recording well in advance. So we're probably finishing up our Disney bracket. And if we're finished up with it, then we're probably started the comics bracket. The what? The comics bracket. Ooh, I'm excited for that. Yeah. So um, our next bracket, we'll probably announce this by now for sure, is we're doing a bracket of movies based on comic books that are not part of DC or Marvel. I also co-host another podcast. It's called The Equalizers, where me and my friend Madison Jones uh, come up with sequels or prequels for movies that never got them, either because they're very good and they don't need a sequel or prequel, or they're very bad and they don't deserve one. I actually don't know how far we've gotten. We'll have definitely released our Wicker Man 2 episode and probably Galaxy Quest 2 by now. That's about as far ahead as I'm going to guess. Find us on iTunes, anywhere podcasts are found by searching Equalizers, and it's spelled E-Q-U-E-L-I-Z-E-R-S, like in sequel. Before we sign off, Jackson, there is one crucial piece of business we forgot. Oh, no. And that is, of this episode, whose facial hair reigns supreme? That's right. We forgot about Must Clash Season 2. And for those who don't remember, Must Clash is where we take the best of the 1800s British mustaches that we see in these seasons and compare them. Last season's winner was, of course, the King of Bohemia, who had uh, the mutton cleavers. And so we'll see who the winner is for this time. Does anybody even have facial hair in this? No, not really. Like Watson, I guess? And Fowler has some. I barely remember them. You know what? I think that means David Burke takes it for the first time. Oh, congrats, David Burke. You're currently the leader for season two. Yeah, that's not, you know, I I think David Burke, could, because unfortunately for the Burke heads out there, um, the Burke, let's see. The Burkermeisters. Yeah, the, <laughs> <laughs> what, that, that's a good placeholder for now. <laughs> for all you Burkemeisters out there, this is the last season we have with uh, David Burke. Sherlock Holmes may go over Reichenbach Falls at the end of the season, but uh, unfortunately David Burke is the one who doesn't come back. It's nice that he got on the books as... The Copper Beach's best facial hair. Anyway, thanks for joining us for A Study in Granada. Next week, it's all Greek to us as we look into the adventure of the Greek interpreter. And as per usual, I will do my entire review of that episode in Greek. We're rare to meet thy go. Did you enjoy funny stories, Miss Hunter? No! Why, yes. No, say no! Leave! To find her eyes fixed upon me in the most searching gaze. Leave! No, no, no. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Just steal the silver and run. There's skulls on the wall. There are so many skulls on that wall. Why would you walk into that hallway with that many skulls on the wall?